Welcome to the Cancer Care Net Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you're here from my panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Update on Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, which is part one of Life with Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia. So that will be part two as well. Um, and today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the um, and the Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Society, and I really, CLL Society, and I'm delighted to be partnering with them on this program. And they actually um, have been just wonderful partners with us on all of the programs that we do on CLL. Um, and I, I have to say it's a wonderful, and you'll hear more about the CLL Society um, as we move along in the call. We also are working with a number of other organizations, cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations as well, to help spread the word about this program. Now, today's program is supported by Pharmaceuticals LLC and AbbVie Company and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And really want to thank them for their support as well. Now, we have had quite a wonderful response to our program today. We have over 256 participants on the call today. So there are a lot of you from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Austria, Australia, Canada, Germany, Norway, Switzerland, and United Kingdom. So a bit of a global call as well, and it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Adam Katai, and Dr. Katai is Assistant Professor, Division of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine, the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. And Dr. Katai will be addressing an overview of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, current treatment options, and CLL and COVID-19, that context. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Katai. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me today. I'm really appreciative of the invite. So let's start with an overview. When I first meet patients in clinic who are newly diagnosed, I like to go over the five W's and one H of CLL. What is it? Who gets it? Where is it? Why did I get it? When should we treat it? And how should we treat it? So let's start with what is CLL. CLL stands for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Let's break that down. First thing to note is that we consider it a chronic disease, one that patients live with for years, and like other chronic illnesses, patients need to be treated periodically. Lymphocytic stands for the type of white blood cell that is involved. CLL is a cancer of the white blood cells, and lymphocytes is a type of white blood cell. You'll notice under the differential of a complete blood count that you may have seen that CLL patients have higher than normal lymphocytes when compared to the other types of white blood cells. This is a hallmark of this type of cancer, having too many lymphocytes in your blood. Finally, leukemia simply stands for cancer of the blood. I always talk about leukemia last because leukemia has generally a bad connotation. I want to remind you that we already went through the chronic part of the name. Unlike an acute leukemia, CLL is a chronic leukemia, one that patients typically live with for years, needing intermittent therapy. Let's talk about who gets CLL. CLL is the most common leukemia in adults in the United States. It's a disease of older adults with an average age of 70, but we do see it in younger individuals as well. There are no occupational or environmental risk factors. There is some thought that this is a genetic disease, meaning it can run in families. However, there is no early testing recommendation for first-degree relatives. I advise all my patients that they should have their first-degree relatives speak to their primary care provider and that more attention should be paid to complete blood counts in the future. Where is it? Many patients wonder what stage their cancer is. Leukemia and thus CLL is a little different than other cancers. It's hard to stage as it is already throughout the body at diagnosis because of the disease of the blood. That being said, CLL predominantly hangs out in your bone marrow, blood, lymph nodes, and spleen, the same place as normal white blood cells live. There is a staging system called the RISE stage that accounts for the lymph node, liver, and spleen size, as well as level of hemoglobin and platelets. 
However, this score was developed in 1975, and it is unclear if it still has relevance in the modern era. Why did I get this? This question I really don't have an answer to. I mentioned earlier that there may be a genetic component to this disease, as it can run in families, but ultimately we don't know why some people get CLL and others don't. When should we treat? I want to start out this question by pointing out that we are talking about the when do we treat first, not the how do I treat. The reason we do this is that we know that treating CLL early does not change how patients do, but rather exposes patients to more toxicity from the treatment itself. For patients who do not have an indication to treat, we use a watch and wait strategy until indications to treat are met. Hot off the press today, there was an article published in Blood of a new scoring system that allows us to better estimate time to first treatment based on a few variables. This is something to discuss with your providers. Per the guidelines, there are specific indications to treat. I like to tell my patients that these indications are not one size fit all, meaning there is subjectivity and the decision to start treatment should be based off a conversation between you and your provider. I also tell them that typically CL doesn't come with surprises. We will know if the disease is worsening based off your cell counts and we'll have a gradual discussion of when the best time to treat for the individual patient is over time. Generally, there are four indications to treat per the IWCLL guidelines. One is hemoglo low hemoglobin or platelets. Two is a large spleen. Three is large lymph nodes. And four is symptoms. So for the first indication, we typically consider a hemoglobin less than 10 or platelets less than 100 an indication to treat. For the second, spleen, the guidelines say over six centimeters below costal margin. However, I don't love this because it's hard for providers to assess, and for patients, it's hard to understand. My general rule, though, is that if your spleen is so big that you are eating less or is painful, we should consider treating your CLL. Three, lymph nodes greater than 10 centimeters. This might sound large because it is, and remember that the CLL lives in your lymph nodes. Four is symptoms. These can be subjective and, in my opinion, should be affecting your daily life for it is to be the sole reason to treat the CLL. Remember, we are always balancing toxicity of treatment versus toxicity of the disease. The four symptoms are fatigue, unexplained fevers or chills, weight loss, or night sweats. Sometimes these are referred to B symptoms or constitutional symptoms. Once again, generally, I don't treat based off of symptoms alone unless they are severe. Typically, patients meet multiple of these indications to treat. So now we discussed what CLL is and a general overview. Let's talk about the current treatment options. So how do I treat? The landscape of treatment for CLL has drastically changed over the past 10 years, where previously we used chemotherapy, usually given as infusions through the vein for a limited time course. We are now utilizing what we call targeted therapy or small molecule inhibitors which are pills that we take once or twice per day. As a general take-home message, the pills work better and have less side effects than the chemotherapy. The trade-off is that many of the pills require lifelong treatment and can be expensive. I will focus my talk today on the pills that we have to offer. There are currently three pills approved for the frontline treatment of CLL. They are Ibrutinib or Ibruvica, Acalabrutinib or Calquence, and Venetoclax. They have never been compared head-to-head so we don't know which one works the best. I typically decide which to use based off of side effects and which side effects may be worse for certain patients with certain problems. Specifically, I pay close attention to patients' age, whether they have heart disease, and the burden of disease when making a choice on what treatment to use. Let's start off by talking about Ibrutinib. Ibrutinib is the first pill to be approved for the treatment of CLL and thus has the longest track record of success and is the one we are most familiar with. The take-home point for Ibrutinib is we know it works, we know for how long it works, and we know the side effect profile very well. It's given once per day, and we give it until the disease stops responding to the treatment or if toxicity occurs. The toxicity of this medication are typically joint pain, easy, bruisey bleeding, and abnormal rhythm of your heart. These side effects typically worsen over time. I typically use Ibrutinib as my first choice of medication for CLL. Acalabrutinib is also a pill and works the same as Ibrutinib. It's given twice a day, and we give it until the disease is no longer responding to the medication. I typically use acalabrutinib for my older patients. Although we are not 100% sure, it appears that acalabrutinib has a better side effect profile than Ibrutinib, 
and doesn't cause as much abnormal heart rhythms. If a patient does not tolerate ibrutinib, I switch them to acalabrutinib. The main side effect of acalabrutinib is a headache in the first few months of treatment. Venetoclax, or venclexta, is a pill. The biggest advantage to venetoclax is that you only take it for one year and then you stop. You don't take it until the disease no longer responds like acalabrutinib or abrutinib. But there are some disadvantages. We pair it with an infusion of an antibody called obinutuzumab, which you get for the first six months. Patients might need to be hospitalized twice during the first month of treatment based on how much CLL disease they have. It also tends to be a little harder to take than the abrutinib, acalabrutinib, as patients complain about diarrhea and can get low cell counts which need to be monitored closely. The take-home point on a venetoclax is that the big advantage is it's only for one year, but it can be harder to take. Typically, if the disease worsens after receiving one of these three medications, we switch to one of the other medications. This is how we treat CLL for the first and second time that requires treatment. I want to emphasize that these medications are all really great, and even though there can be side effects and the list is long, they are typically very well tolerated. I advise my patients to give the medication a shot. If we always switch or switch to something that makes them feel better or decrease the dose to make it work. My goal is to always find a treatment regimen that works for the individual patient that allows them to enjoy their life to the fullest. I am usually able to attain that goal. And patients typically live on one of these medications for years, and they do quite, quite well. So the last topic to cover is CLL and COVID-19. I think the best resource for this is the following website, put together by the experts in the field, www.hematology.org backslash COVID-19 backslash COVID-19-end-CLL. To better find it, you can go onto the American Society of Hematology website, click on View COVID-19 Resources, and then click on Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia under Malignant Topics. Currently, the American Society of Hematology is collecting data to see how patients with blood disorders are affected by COVID-19. This data is not available yet, and thus any research on this topic is limited. I think the point I want to stress here is that we know that patients with CLL are at higher risk for infections. As it is a cancer for the white blood cells, the white blood cells are not normal and can't do their normal job of fighting infections. CLL also affects older adults, and older adults tend to do worse with COVID-19. Therefore, patients with CLL are likely at higher risk for contracting COVID-19. However, there is no evidence indicating that CLL patients are at higher risk. It's a rapidly changing topic, and we just don't have the answers yet. Three specific things I am doing differently because of COVID-19. One, first and foremost, which is my driving principle at this time, is I'm trying to limit patient exposure to the healthcare system. Specifically, I'm getting labs less frequently if patients have stable, have stable disease for a long time, and all my visits are done either through video or telephone. Staying away from people is the best thing that you could do at this time. For patients who, number two is for patients who need to start or change treatment, I am trying to delay this change for as long as possible. Earlier, I talked about indications to treat and how it can be subjective. From that point, I'm doing my best to not treat unless I absolutely have to. The reason being is that when we start treatment, we monitor patients more closely, and that increases patients' exposure to the hospital system. Lastly, I'm steering away from venetoclax right now. Ultimately, I'm going to still pick the treatment that is best for the patient, but as we talked about earlier, venetoclax requires more monitoring and potential hospitalization, which once again increases our patient's exposure. Remember, the best way to stay protected from COVID-19 is to limit your exposure to other people, wash your hands, and don't touch your face. Don't touch your face. Please stay safe. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Dr. Kate. That was really what a, a wonderful presentation to start off this program today. Just outstanding. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A because they're coming in already. So there we have it. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Lindsay Roker. Dr. Roker is the Hematology Medical Oncology Fellow, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Roker will be addressing managing complications of CLL, new and emerging treatment approaches, and clinical trial updates. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Roker. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and thank you all for being here today. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
I want to start with the complications of CLL. And um, as a general overview, many of the complications that I'm going to touch on are a consequence of changes in the immune system that are mediated by CLL. So we know that um, patients' immune systems are affected both because the body's per putting resources toward making CLL cells instead of um, healthy white blood cells, which are part of the immune system. But we also think that the, white, the CLL cells somehow change the way that the immune system interacts with um, infections or other threats around them. So the first is frequent infections. We know that patients can be at higher risk of infection both because of the CLL and that underlying disease process, but also because of the therapy they're on. So one of the most important things that we talk about in clinic is preventing infections. And just like Dr. Kate mentioned, washing your hands, staying away from other people right now is particularly effective. But outside of the context of COVID-19, we can prevent infections like the flu with a seasonal flu vaccine. We can prevent pneumonia with a pneumonia vaccine. That's a series of two, and um, they're called Prevnar and Pneumovax. And it's a good idea to talk to your providers about whether you're up to date because it's two shots, and then sometimes patients need boosters, depending on the age that they are when they get their first shot. And then the third vaccine that we really recommend is called Shingrix, and that protects patients from shingles, which um, is a viral infection. If patients are neutropenic, um, meaning that they have a low neutrophil count, and that's something that can be determined based on um, a blood count that's a, um, obtained, it, there can be value to getting a growth factor or a booster shot that helps your body produce more neutrophils that really um, help your body fight off infections. The neutropenia often comes when patients are on medications for their CLL. And if that's the case, changes in the dosage of medications can also be helpful in, um, in decreasing the risk of infection. For patients who are having frequent infections, it's important to talk to your oncologist. And I know when people have frequent sinus infections, they often call their primary doctors. But this is a situation where calling your oncologist is definitely the right thing to do because we can check something called your immunoglobulin levels. And if they're low, there can be value to adding something called IVIG, which is a, an IV therapy that's basically a pooled immune system from other people. And it helps your body um, fight it helps protect you from infections. So if you are having frequent infections, that's something to talk to your providers about. The second um, complication is that patients with CLL have a slightly increased risk of other cancers. For that reason, we recommend that every CLL patient have a dermatologist and see them at le least once a year for an annual skin exam. And the reason is that we know that patients are at increased risk for both non-melanoma and melanoma skin cancers. The second recommendation is that all CLL patients should undergo their age-appropriate cancer screening. We know that there's a slightly higher risk from the general population for some solid tumors, but the best thing you can do to protect yourself is get your colonoscopy when you're supposed to. For men having prostate cancer screening and for women having breast cancer and cervical cancer screenings with mammograms or other breast imaging and pap smears and pelvic exams. Um, doing so when your doctor recommends it is important, and it's good to partner with your primary care doctor to make sure you're staying up to date on all of these things. The third complication we see is autoimmune complications, and this can happen when the immune system actually misfires against your own blood cells. So the immune system can start to break down red blood cells. When that happens, patients can start um, having symptoms of anemia, which are lightheadedness or fatigue shortness of breath, chest pressure. If you're experiencing any of those symptoms, it's definitely a good idea to get evaluated quickly. Um, the immune system can also destroy platelets. And if that happens, you can see bleeding complications. Um, and if you're having any bleeding, that's also a reason to um, seek attention. The fourth complication that I'll touch on in the last is that very rarely CLL can transform into a more aggressive lymphoma. And we call this a Richter's transformation. This is something to be aware of because if you find that you have a spot that's suddenly going from a small lymph node that's growing quickly or you develop the B symptoms that Dr. Kate touched on, like fevers or chills, night sweats where you're waking up drenched and having to change your pajamas, or weight loss without trying, those are a good reason to contact your provider and make sure that um, 
there is no transformation happening. The next topic, uh, the next two topics I'll actually kind of cover together because new and emerging treatment approaches really highlight the importance of clinical trials. And um, I like to talk to my patients about the importance of understanding what the clinical trial that you're considering um, is. Is it randomized or is it single arm? Meaning, will there be, um, are there multiple possible treatments or is it just one possible treatment? And then there are some clinical trials that are using approved drugs in new ways, and there are some clinical trials that are using um, entirely new drugs. So when we think about the new and emerging treatment approaches, there are some classes of medications that we already have therapies um, approved, but we're looking at new drugs. So the first example is BTK inhibitors. We already have ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. Um, but there are some new ones as well. So Xanabrutinib is a new medication that's approved for other indications, but in CLL is being investigated and um, being studied in clinical trials. And then there are also some um, newer versions of BTK inhibitors, which work to overcome some of the resistance that is seen uh, to uh, the currently approved BTK inhibitors. And those are called LOXO-305 and ARQ-531. Um, so those are drugs that we're excited about because they seem to work even when ibrutinib or acalabrutinib stop working, and they seem to be really promising for patients. The second class of drugs that we are seeing um, new medications in are the PI3K inhibitors. There's one called ME401 and one called Umbrilisib. Those are drugs that are currently being investigated. Then there are other um, approaches, non-drug approaches. So there are evaluations of bispecific antibodies, which really help your um, body recognize CLL cells. So some of these bispecific antibodies are infusion therapies that basically, I like to think of them as grabbing onto CLL cells and grabbing onto part of your immune system and introducing them to each other so that your immune system can start fighting off that CLL. There are also CAR-T therapies, um, and these are bioengineered uh, T cells, which are a part of your immune system that really are meant to go and attack uh, the CLL cells. And those are being investigated in clinical trials as well. Then when thinking about other clinical trials, um, we're looking at novel combinations, meaning how do we combine the drugs that we have to be more, even more effective than they already are? So there are drugs looking at combinations of a BTK inhibitor, like ibrutinib or acalabrutinib, with venetoclax and an antibody therapy, like obinutuzumab or rituximab. Um, and there are lots of ongoing trials looking at those combinations. And then the last um, thing that I want to highlight is that there are some clinical trials really looking at depth of response and whether you can use the depth of response to drive how long you're on therapy. So it might be possible for some patients to come off therapy even um, before the year time point um, that was previously highlighted, or for some patients who don't get that deep response, maybe it's better to be on drugs for longer. Um, and those questions are ones that we're actively looking at and trying to figure out uh, the best way to treat patients on kind of an individualized uh, basis. So in terms of clinical trial updates, I think the most recent data have really highlighted how great the drugs are that we have approved. We've seen that ibrutinib and the combination of venetoclax and obinutuzumab are two therapies that are really outstanding and provide long-term disease control for our patients. There were also um, recently re reported studies showing that acalabrutinib is a great therapy, and based on that, that was uh, acalabrutinib was FDA approved. There are also the combination therapies we talked to talked about and new drugs that um, have all shown really promising results in clinical trials. So it's an exciting time in CLL, and um, certainly if you are interested in clinical trials, it's a good idea to talk to your provider, let them know, and see what's available around you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Roca. That was outstanding and just a wonderful presentation. I really want to thank you, and I will be questions for you also during the Q&A, so thank you so much. 
And our next speaker, speaker is Dr. Um, Deborah Stevens. And Dr. Stevens is Assistant Professor, Division of Hematology and Hematologic Malignancies, Department of Internal Medicine, Physician Leader, Hematology Clinical Trials Research Group, Huntsman Cancer Institute, University of Utah. And Dr. Stevens will be addressing managing CLL and other health conditions, key questions to ask your healthcare team, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stevens. Thanks so much for the introduction, and hello to everyone out there. Um, it's great to have you all on the call today, and it's, a great, it's my great pleasure to speak with you today. And also wanted to thank the, the speakers, Dr. Kate and Dr. Roker, for a great, um, great talk so far. Uh, as mentioned, I will be discussing the management of CLL in relationship to other health conditions, some quality of life concerns that are common in patients with CLL, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. When we think about managing CLL along with other health conditions, this is really important as many patients with CLL have other chronic medical conditions, and CLL or the treatment of CLL may actually worsen these conditions. So my first comment uh, regarding this would be, anytime your doctor plans to start a new CLL treatment, I want you to make sure that they know any medications, vitamins, or supplements that you are taking just because we want to ensure that there will be no drug interactions with your CLL therapies. Secondly, I want to highlight a few key conditions that can be worsened by CLL treatments. And these treatments were nicely introduced by Dr. Kate and Dr. Roker. I want to pick on ibrutinib just a little bit because there are several chronic conditions that can be worsened by ibrutinib therapy. Um, so I want to touch on them, what symptoms to look out for, um, and what potential options are there for treatment or relief of these symptoms. So again, with ibrutinib, it's been mentioned arthritis is a problem, and so if you already have osteoarthritis or other joint-related pains, this ibrutinib can worsen this. This typically will occur early in ibrutinib therapy, so usually within the first month or two that you're on therapy, and actually gets better with time. And so if you're having some initial symptoms, it may just be that your body needs to get used to the drug. In the short term, I usually use Tylenol or sometimes even a short course of oral steroids. And there's a little bit of data that magnesium supplements might help with this arthritis. So just to keep in mind when you're starting ibrutinib, arthritis is something that can get worse. The second condition that I'd like to discuss is something called atrial fibrillation. And this is an irregular heart rhythm. Symptoms of this are usually a feeling of a fast heartbeat or shortness of breath. This is a very serious condition, and it actually does require urgent evaluation by a doctor, as you may need a blood thinner um, in order to prevent having a stroke. Ibrutinib has been shown in about 6% of people to cause atrial fibrillation, and in my experience, it is more common in patients who already have a history of atrial fibrillation. In addition to arthritis and atrial fibrillation, it's been mentioned that bleeding and bruising is a problem on ibrutinib. And this is important because if you were to have other medications that cause you to bleed and bruise, there could be an increased uh, risk of severe bleeding. Also, if you're planning to have a procedure for anything, you know, even an um, orthopedic procedure, a, a knee scope or something like that, you'll want to let your oncologist know because they'll advise you how long you need to hold the medication before and after the procedure to limit your risk of bleeding. So in addition to arthritis, atrial fibrillation, and bleeding and bruising, I want to comment on uh, another condition that is common in many patients and is more common as you progress on your ibrutinib therapy. This is high blood pressure. And this is coming more and more to our attention that blood pressure over time will raise with ibrutinib therapy. Your doctor should be monitoring this at each visit and it's possible you may need to start medications to lower your blood pressure to manage this. So in summary, these four, I think, important um, medical conditions that can worsen on ibrutinib therapy are important to consider. 
and they are arthritis, atrial fibrillation, bleeding and bruising, and high blood pressure. Now, I want to caution you that you may need to hold or reduce your dose of drug, but please do not do that without your doctor's instructions because prolonged holding of medication, there is a concern for creating resistant CLL. Another therapy that has mentioned is acalabrutinib or calquins. We don't know, but we are suspecting that there, these side effects may be less with this drug, and so it may be an, a potential option to discuss with your physician is switching to acalabrutinib if you're having intolerable side effects. So moving away from ibrutinib, uh, venetoclax and the CD20 monoclonal antibodies called obinutuzumab and rituximab have been mentioned. And I just want to comment that patients who have kidney issues may want to seriously reconsider another therapy if this is recommended. And the reason why is because the drugs work very quickly. And when you initially receive them, something called tumor lysis syndrome can happen. Um, this is when tumor cells break down and release waste products into the bloodstream, and it can be very toxic to the kidneys. Your level of risk is determined not only by your kidney function, but how high of a white blood cell count you have and how big are your lymph nodes. Your doctor will advise you on tumor lysis prevention before starting the drug, which usually involves increasing fluid intake or taking medications to limit the level of toxins in your system, such as allopurinol. If you are at high risk, you may need to be admitted to the hospital for monitoring. Um, and as Dr. Kate said, during this time period, we would like to keep you out of the hospital as much as possible. The good news about this is it's typically not a risk after you make it through the first month, um, and so it's really just an early side effect. The only other comment about medical conditions that need to be considered um, when receiving these combinations are for patients who have diabetes. The reason being is that the most common side effects of obinutuzumab or rituximab are something called an effusion-related reaction. This happens while you're getting the drug infused into your system. And in order to prevent those things, we actually use steroids as pre-medication. Those of you who have diabetes know that steroids can really make your blood sugar very high. And so before starting these medications, you need to have a plan for blood sugar monitoring and control in place. Now, moving away from the drug-related symptoms, I want to comment on issues very important to quality of life for patients, and these are CLL-related symptoms. These symptoms have been mentioned, but I think they're worth repeating in this conference because they're symptoms that you should report to the doctor and ones that your doctor should be asking you about at all of your appointments. And those are fevers in the setting of no infection, they're night sweats, and I mean drenching night sweats, so soaking through your clothes or or your sheets and you have to get up and change them. Unplanned weight loss, and a significant amount of weight loss is 10% of your body weight in a six month period of time. Pain in your spleen or lymph nodes. And just to repeat them again, these are fevers, night sweats, unplanned weight loss, and pain in your spleen or lymph nodes. And if your doctor cannot find another cause for these symptoms other than CLL, they may require treatment of your CLL in order to relieve resolve these symptoms. I do want to take a couple of minutes to talk about a side effect of CLL that I think is really important, and that's fatigue. And the reason why I think it's important is because probably 50 to 70% of CLL patients have it, and that may be an underestimate because maybe some have it but don't uh, mention it at their visits. This side effect is pretty difficult because it's not a very specific side effect and there are many other potential causes. So if you're having some significant fatigue, I want to give you a few steps um, in order to address this. Step number one, I want you to discuss it with your doctor uh, because step two would be your doctor ruling out other causes. So often when patients complain of significant fatigue, um, I, I like to check their hormone levels like their thyroid or male's testosterone levels I check B12 levels to make sure those are not low. I check them for kidney or liver disease, which can lead to fatigue. And I ask questions that may be related to patients having sleep apnea, which is a condition where you stop breathing for short periods of time during the night. I also evaluate people for depression and anxiety because those are actually very significant causes of fatigue. And if we can address those, uh, the fatigue is often very nicely relieved. 
So after discussing with your doctor, ruling out other causes, the next step is lifestyle modifications. And I want to say exercise and exercise with an exclamation point because I think people who exercise actually have significantly less fatigue. They have better sleep habits and get more restful sleep at night, which all are key components to lifestyle modifications. Also consider your diet and make sure you're eating a healthy diet. Step four, if none of the other things work, you may make a decision with your doctor either to treat your CLL, you may need to be referred to someone like a supportive oncology specialist for symptom management. Now there are some medications such as Provigil and Ritalin which are given for um, ADHD, which have a little bit of benefit um, a medication called Jacophy, which is for a different blood condition. None of these are particularly proven, and some of them are addictive, and so I'm very cautious in how I use these medications to prevent fatigue. Um, and your doctor may have a whole supportive oncology team that can work with you, and so make sure you're asking about these steps. So, so what should you ask your healthcare team? I want to break this down into two portions, and one is when you're starting a new treatment. So as you've heard, there's lots of great options for CLL patients, but what I want you to ask your doctor, first of all, is what side effects might I expect with the drug? Because sometimes if you know what to expect, that helps you actually stay on the medication because you knew that that was a potential side effect. Also, how long is the treatment? Because you've heard that drugs like ibrutinib and acolabrutinib are indefinite schedules, whereas venetoclax has a time-limited course. So that may be important um, to you, exactly how long is the treatment. You also might want to know how well do you expect my CLL to respond. Um, these, you know, the good thing about most of our drugs now is we have a great chance of getting your CLL to respond. And the last point here is before you start any new treatment, I would ask your doctor, do you have any clinical trials that you can discuss? If not, you might ask, could you refer to a nearby center that has clinical trials available? Or you can do your own preliminary search on clinicaltrials.gov to find out if there are any interesting new drugs that are available. This is really important because all of our standard therapies went through the same process of, of being on a clinical trial. And so I do think it's really important um, to try to, to try to find therapies that have the best response possible in CLL. The next set of questions to ask your healthcare team are more for patients who are on the watch and wait portion of their therapy or are post-remission and in monitoring. So make sure you know what symptoms you want your, your doctor wants to hear about, and those are the symptoms I talked about before. Um, you wanna know how can you contact the office if you have a problem earlier than the scheduled visit. Uh, many physicians have the ability to contact, you can contact them through email or by phone. There should also be an on-call number if you have a problem over the weekend. Another question I think is really important is, does your center have any supportive oncology services? So many cancer centers offer things like exercise program, massage, acupuncture, or classes, support groups, and counselors for patients with CLL. So I think those are key questions for patients who are in watch or wait or post remission. So hopefully today you've learned a little bit about managing CLL along with other medical conditions, some CLL-related therapy, side effects, and CLL-related symptoms, and some questions to ask your healthcare team. So I thank you for your attention today, and I'll turn it back over to our moderator. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Stevens. That was really outstanding, and you really covered a lot of issues that are so important uh, people have to be aware of in terms of how to access their team and, and on weekends and evenings, and, and those are just such important questions in the whole, and your whole presentation um, at the detail. And I know there are questions for you during the Q&A. They're coming in anyway, so <laughs> there we have it. So, and our next speaker um, is actually um, is Patty Kaufman, Patricia Kaufman, and she is co-founder and executive director of the CLL Society, Inc. And for the past number of years, I, I think it's been over six years now, we have been partnering with the CLL Society on every 
CLL program that we do, and it's really um, enhanced, I have to say, the programs enormously, um, both the scope and breadth of them. And so, um, and and um, Ms. Kaufman is going to be addressing the CLL Society, Inc.'s free services and programs, and it is my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kaufman. Thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to be a part of this uh, panel discussion, and I recognize the value that our our speakers thus far have brought to the CLL patients that um, come to the CLL Society. So thank you. I've learned a lot, and thank you for inviting me. The CLL Society is a 501c3 nonprofit, which is laser-focused on CLL. Our website provides tools to enable you to advocate for the best possible care for your CLL, to develop a deep knowledge of CLL treatment options, and to bring you into a community where having CLL is a normal part of everyday life. We are all in this together, and all of our services are free. While COVID-19 has been disruptive, it has not derailed the CLL Society. We've developed a webinar format that's been designed to put your pressing COVID-19 questions directly in front of our panel of experts. Join us for our upcoming COVID-19 virtual community meeting part three, which will take place on Friday, April 17, 2020. Come to our website to register. This online event will feature Dr. Alexi Danilov, a CLL expert from the City of Hope, Dr. Shadman from the Fred Hutch Cancer Center, Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Josh Hill, also from Fred Hutch Cancer Center, Dr. Brian Kaufman, a physician and CLL patient, Laboratory Scientist Dr. Susan LeClaire, and Tom Henry, a pharmacist and CLL patient. All will give well-informed, up-to-the-minute answers about COVID-19 as, as well as they are known at this point. So when you register, please send in your questions. This is for you. Parts one and two are available for replay on our website. Are you newly diagnosed? If you are, please don't miss our seminar called Just Diagnosed? What do I need to know? Find out everything you need to know on Tuesday, April 28th, when Dr. Neil Kay, a CLL expert from the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Brian Kaufman bring you answers. Do you want a free second opinion from a CLL expert? Well, we can get you one and you don't have to wear a mask and you don't have to wear gloves and there's absolutely no risk of exposure to COVID-19 because this will be an online consult with a CLL expert. Research shows that there is a survival advantage to having a CLL expert on your team. CLL Society's expert access um, program will put you in contact with a CLL expert who has reviewed your case in advance. Do you qualify for this expert second opinion? You qualify if you meet these three criteria. Do you live in the United States? If yes, you're, you, you've, 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 made the, you've made it over the first hurdle. You need to have a diagnosis of CLL, and you need to not be currently in the care of a CLL expert. This service is called Expert Access. It's completely free. The CLL Society website will educate you, define terminology for you, help you track your lab results, advise you how to best build a well-rounded medical and caregiver team, will give you the opportunity to ask the doctor, ask the pharmacist, ask the laboratory scientist. We will bring you breaking news. We understand that COVID-19 is an acute illness. After the COVID-19 crisis has passed, CLL patients will still need critical support and credible cutting-edge treatment information. The CLL Society will be there for you. Our motto is smart patients get smart care. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Coffin. That was really wonderful. And just what a wonderful resource for everybody on the call. So many of you may be familiar with the CLL Society, but if you're not, again, you'll be getting more information about them. Um, and their, um, their expert, um, you know, consult sounds like just a wonderful opportunity for many of you on this call. So um, definitely, and all the other resources, the webinars, all the other things that they're doing sound terrific. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Danielle Sass, and Ms. Sass is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, 
and she's going to be discussing Kansas's free psychosocial services and programs. And it is really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Saff. Hello. As Dr. Messner mentioned, I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care and specialize in working with older adults. I provide support services to individuals and their loved ones who are impacted by a cancer diagnosis. I also stay up to date with changing trends and new knowledge in the field in order to provide the best care possible. We've been talking today about ways to manage your care, and I'd like to speak about the importance of creating a support network and how cancer care can help. We are a leading national organization dedicated to providing free professional support services, including counseling, support groups, educational workshops, publication, and financial assistance to anyone impacted by cancer. All our services are provided by oncology social workers and world-leading cancer experts. We are trained in how a cancer diagnosis can impact an individual and their loved ones. A cancer diagnosis can come with many challenges, including financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact. Our social workers are knowledgeable and can address the full scope of issues that cancer patients and their supports may face. Our short-term, cancer-focused individual counseling and support groups are available to those who are diagnosed with cancer as well as for loved ones or caregivers to address these concerns. They're offered in person in the New York City, New Jersey area and over the phone and online nationally. Working one-on-one with an oncology social worker and individual counseling can offer a space that's just yours to express your concerns. It also provides a space to help navigate difficult decision-making, communicating with loved ones or your medical team, among many other challenges that may arise. Your social worker can work with you to address your concerns in a way that's tailored to meet your individual needs. Joining a support group offers the opportunity to speak with others who may be experiencing similar issues and navigating similar challenges. Additionally, it is also a space to both gather and provide support and obtain valuable information. We offer several support groups for patients and caregivers. We currently have an online support group for patients in treatment for blood cancer and an online general support group for caregivers. A cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming. Having support and guidance, as well as establishing a support network of trusted people can help to relieve feelings of anxiety that may come up. Having the support can also reduce feelings of loneliness and can help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. In addition to this, we also provide educational workshops, reading material, as well as limited support, financial support, I apologize. If you are interested in learning more, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at one 800 813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. Here you can discuss what led you to cancer care and explore with one of our social workers the ways in which we can offer support. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be part of this program today. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Seth. That was wonderful and just a wonderful resource for everybody to, to take advantage of all the services um, from cancer care. Um, and all the financial assistance, practical assistance, and all of the online and telephone support groups that we offer. So thank you so much. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask um, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. We have quite a few lined up already. So um, Norma, Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, at this time, if you have a question, please press star 1. We have a question from one of our online participants on how is Jaxby helpful. Um, Dr. Um, Goodbye, could you address that question? Hi. Uh, so, Jacophy is a medication that we typically use for patients with um, myeloproliferative neoplasms. It targets JAK2. Um, it hasn't been well studied in CLL, uh, but I think what I think Dr. Stevens was referring to uh, is that it has been shown to help reduce spleen size, and I think that's what she was hoping to convey when she was talking. And did you want to add to that, Dr. Stevens? No, that's exactly right. Um, okay. Some, like I said, there there have been some limited studies that show that this may benefit um, symptoms as far as reduced spleen. Um, 
And um, we have another online question, um, and this is um, well, for, actually for Dr. Stevens. Um, how do we, you deal with adherence issues in terms of taking one's treatment on schedule? Well, I think that this is particularly important um, in patients on the oral medications. Um, and especially, um, like I mentioned, there are several side effects that patients should be aware of. So I think one, in one way I deal with it is I'm, I spend a lot of time talking about side effects before we start any therapy and also what to do if they're experiencing side effects other than just stopping the medication. Um, every time that the patient comes in, I speak with the patient about their compliance and if they're having some specific issues, we try to work through a way to get the patient back on track. So really, I think that especially the oral medications and especially ones like ibrutinib and acolabrutinib that are taken long-term, these it's really important to check in with your doctor and let them know if you're having trouble keeping on schedule with these because we can think of different alternatives or different strategies to help you keep on track. Excellent. And another question, um, so, um, and this would be for Dr. Roker, um, beyond regular LDH and complete blood count, but initial fish and flow, are there any other diagnostics that are necessary? I have DL13Q. Um, perfect. So LDH and CBCs are common part of our monitoring strategy. If patients have frequent infections, we check immunoglobulin levels. Um, to determine if IVIG can be helpful. But fish and flow are the right test. Um, I will add IGHV testing, which only needs to be done once because once you know your IGHV mutational status, it's not gonna change. Um, and then occasionally, um, we also offer next generation sequencing, which is a way of looking at TP53 specifically and determining if your TP53 mutated can help inform how well therapy might work. Um, that was particularly true when our therapies were focused on chemotherapy. Now we think that a lot of our um, novel agents overcome, you know, the, the TP53 mutation risk, but it is helpful to know whether that mutation is there or not um, for your provider. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and does anyone else want to comment on that or... One other thing to note is I think that they were asking about testing for deletion 13Q. So deletion 13Q is part of the FISH testing. So when we run FISH, we are checking for multiple chromosomal abnormalities, and the ones that we pay attention to for CLL are going to be deletion 13Q that was asked, deletion 11Q, deletion 17P, and trisomy 12 sometimes. So those are the four that we kind of pay attention to when we do the fish, but those are tested when we talk about fish testing. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, so another question from one of our participants um, for Dr. Katai. Can you repeat the specific antibody MOA? Thank you. Sorry, can you repeat the question? Um, can you repeat specific antibody MOA? So I think what they're asking here is what the specific antibodies that we pair with some of our small targeted uh, small molecule inhibitors, uh, what the mechanism of action is. So there are two primary antibodies that we use. One's called rituximab and one's called obinutuzumab. They both target CD20, which lives outside of the membrane of CLL. Um, and that's how they work. Um, where we use them kind of depends. So venetoclax is currently paired with obinutuzumab in the frontline setting, and it's paired with rituximab um, in the relapsed refractory setting. Uh, the reason why that is is just by design. It's how the clinical trials were designed, so that's how they were approved by the Federal Drug um, Administration. Um, obinutuzumab and rituximab are given um, both by infusion uh, with a slightly different um, uh, uh, timing. 
Um, and generally, they've not been compared head-to-head -head in CLL. They've been compared to head-to-head -to -head in other uh, lymphoid malignancies. There's a big debate about um, if obinutuzumab works better than rituximab, um, but that's uh, a very debatable uh, saying, and it's something that we constantly talk about in academic discussions. But in general, obinutuzumab is paired with venetoclax in the frontline setting, and rituximab is uh, paired with venetoclax in the relapse refractory setting. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, here's another question, and this one um, would be for Dr. Roker. What are the CLL specialists saying about younger patients in their 40s regarding normal lifespans with the newer agents and with normal karyotypes at their diagnosis? Most information is focused on the median age group of 70s and older for better outcomes. You don't hear much of normal karyotype or middle age group. Um, if you could comment I, I on think that. It, yeah, it... it um exposes a, a huge question, I think, in the literature, because you're right, a lot of the data that we have is in older patients, um, and kind of that long-term disease co control for younger patients is a different question. Um, in terms of the long-term disease control question, I think it's important to talk to your provider about not only what is your first step, but what is their plan for next steps. Um, hopefully, as modalities with potential for long-term disease control become even better, either CAR-T therapy or even revisiting older modalities like transplant. Um, those are important considerations for our very young patients who have a lot of years to get um, with which we need to work through the therapies we have. So I think it's a great question, one in which we still need data and long-term follow-up of patients treated with novel agents. Um, and it's going to be kind of an evolving question. Thank you. Um, and this will probably be our last question, um, and this one will be for Dr. Stevens. Do you give prophylactic medications with rituxan or obinutuzumab? Uh, this actually questions will go actually to Dr. Um, Katai. So do you give prophylactic medications with rituxan or obinutuzumab? Uh, so that's uh, a good question, and each uh, institute typically has uh, different guidelines for uh, what they give prior to rituximab or obinutuzumab. Uh, typically, uh, they're, we, we give sometimes steroids as well as Benadryl. Um, but it really depends on the institution that you're being treated at. So that's something to talk to your provider about. Excellent. Does anyone want to add to that, um, Dr. Roker? Yeah, we, we really aim to minimize infusion re reactions, um, which are the biggest risk kind of right at the front, at, during that first dose. Um, and if you have a lot of CLL patients, your providers might also try things like different acid blocking medicines or allergy medicines that can be helpful. Thank you. Well, um, I want to thank our speakers. You've been really phenomenal. And I also want to thank all of you who's, who've been listening on the call today. Um, this has been a phenomenal call. Our speakers are, are amazing. I have to say the questions they were asked also are amazing. They were actually um, just wonderful questions that really enhanced the call today. And all of you who've been listening as well. And as we conclude today, I just want to remind all of you that this is a one-hour program and that in, uh, I realize that there are many more questions in queue that people want to have asked, have answers to. So I have a couple of suggestions for you. One is that, first of all, of course you want to go to your healthcare team. They, are, they know the most about you. So even if you asked a question today or even if you um, learned some information today and want to take it back to your healthcare team, please do that because they know you the best. But also um, consider um, the possibility also of um, you also may call. Uh, I know some of you like to go to credible sites, and we've talked about going to really credible sites. So Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Katai had given you some information that of a credible site that you can go to, and you'll get that in your um, in your evaluation form, and you'll get others as well. But the other one is the CLL Society. I certainly we are partnering with them, and they focus only on CLL, so that's a very good place to go to also for information. 
Um, so but those, I think they may be sufficient for all of you to go to. I know you'd like to go to other places, but they will recommend other places. And for those of you who'd like to get any type of uh, support from cancer care, either it being practical and financial assistance or psychosocial counseling or um, support with um, you know any other kinds of needs that you may have, either whether telephone support or online support from us, you know, please just really contact uh, Cancer Care, and um, we know we are actually, of course, um, here to help you as well. But most importantly, as we conclude today, we would not want any of you to feel that you are alone in coping with uh, CLL. We want you to now know that you are part of a really quite a large community of support. There's a lot of organizations out there, and particularly, of course, the CLL Society, uh, cancer Care, um, and many other organizations out there that really have um, tremendous resources for you to call upon. And so it is normal to feel alone sometimes, in general, it's just a normal feeling to have, but please tuck away that you do have places to call. Also, I think as Dr. Stevens pointed out, really find out, you know, who do you contact in your healthcare team on weekends and evenings, because that is often when things come up for you. And I do want to let you know that there is a call center that is open 365 days a year, seven days a week at the American Cancer Society. And they, although they are not able to treat you, they are basically able to talk with you about your concerns. So if for some reason in the middle of the night you can't reach your healthcare team, as long as it's not an emergency situation that you have to call 911 for or something like that, you definitely might want to call them as well, and you'll get that resource as well. So please tuck away that there are resources for you that are free that you can contact um, but also double-check with your healthcare team in terms of their availability so that you know how to reach them if you have these questions in the middle of the night. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank, thank you, each and every one of you, and take good care. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.